And we're back in this Wednesday with Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. British Columbia, they have become the first province to be granted an exemption under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act to remove criminal penalties for the possession of some hard drugs. This three-year exemption is for people who possess a small amount of certain illicit substances for personal use. In making the announcement yesterday, the provincial government said, quote, substance abuse is a public health issue, not a criminal one. Dr. Gorfinkel, your thoughts on this? This is a milestone in Canada's history. And why do I say that? So BC applies to the federal government for an and gets it for the possession of small amounts of cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, MDMA, and fentanyl. So it's a three-year experiment. Let's not exaggerate. It's not, this isn't going on forever. But the new rules will apply as of January 31st, 2023. Individuals can actually have up to 2.5 grams of these substances for personal use. Now, they're not letting it out into the elementary and high school and child care and in airports and in the armed forces. It's not meant to do that. It's also still illegal to produce it, traffic it, or export it. But for personal use, we're getting rid of the stigma. And I'm excited by this idea. So what is that stigma? Well, there's the fear of the arrest. There's the, you know, the shame that goes with it. And what happens when people are incarcerated? Well, the increase of overdose actually goes up. And who's affected mostly by this? Indigenous communities, racialized communities, people who are already behind the eight ball. And if it's to be legal, well, maybe that'll do a little bit to lower the secrecy. And instead of people using it and hiding And using it alone, where they're more likely to have deadly overdoses, it'll be more open. Right. And by that, if it is more open, sorry, and it's a destigmatized, the thought then is with these uh, hard drugs that will enable people to uh, seek help, uh, find help, get treatment? Shaming has never worked for anything. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. Did it work for alcohol? Does it work for sexuality? Quick, get in the closet. Hide yourself. It doesn't work. It's a failure repeatedly. So when we try to put a lot of negativity on medical problems, they fail. You know, so when I had first heard of this concept, I was worried, oh, my gosh, what happens? Is this going to increase the risk of my patients all going out and trying cocaine, trying heroin? Like, Is that what's going to happen? Well, let's talk about other countries that have done it. Consider Portugal for just a second. So they did this in 2000. We're talking 22 years of experience now. And within five years, what did they find? Illegal drug use by teenagers decreased. HIV rates decreased because people weren't sharing needles the same way. Death from heroin dropped by half. We're talking within five years. And the number of people seeking treatment doubled. It actually more than doubled. And drug use, in fact, did not go up. And it's, you know, it's not just Portugal that's done this. It's not like it's a brand new concept. We're talking Belgium, Australia, Mexico, a number of countries have actually done it, and they've done it with tremendous success. Yeah, so having said that and pointing to, uh, you know, these other countries that have done it with uh, success and some of the positives that can come from this, I just want one final note on this because we know uh, BC in particular has been hit hard by uh, the fentanyl crisis. Uh, 
should it be done now? I mean, even 2023, the January 2023, I mean, we're still looking at what, six, seven months uh, from now. So true. But consider that it does take time for edicts like this to go through the police. Like a lot of people have to change a lot of rules. The court system has to understand it. Physicians need to understand it. Healthcare workers, you know, and when you talk about the deaths in BC, it's really formidable. You consider that just in 2021, there were over 2,200 deaths. That's five to seven deaths occurring every day. And these are generally young and otherwise healthy individuals. You know, so you look at the total number of deaths since 2016. This is in BC. This is BC data. COVID has killed just a third of the number of people that, you know, drug overdoses have in the past five years in BC. Like, this is a serious health problem, and it should be understood that way. And don't get me started, because frankly, our entire incarceration system, in my view, needs serious questioning, especially when it comes to isolating individuals in prison. To me, that should be illegal. That's going to worsen their health outcomes, both mentally and physically. Joined on the line by Dr. Iris uh, Gorfinkel. Just in our remaining uh, minutes here, Dr. Gorfinkel, also wanted to ask you about uh, what seems to be a significant discovery when it comes to uh, Alzheimer's uh, disease. Uh, They're looking at uh, cells that uh, overheat, uh, apparently uh, proteins uh, implicated in the uh, disease, uh, causing cells to overheat. And uh, as researchers are terming it here, they fry like eggs. They fry like eggs. I just love the way they sell the study. So brief overview of Alzheimer's. Two proteins cause the damage, amyloid and tau. So these are responsible for cell death that results in memory loss and personality changes and coping with just activities of daily living. So what do these researchers do? They ask the question, why would amyloid and tau destroy the cells? How do they do that? Well, as it turns out, The amyloid, as it bends and folds, it creates a little bit of heat. And that heat, they call it, make the cells fry like eggs. Well, it actually does overheat the cells, and that's what kills the cells. And moreover, they also found that that extra heat causes more proteins to fold and clump together. So you get this horrible chain reaction that only increases as the damage goes on to worsen Alzheimer's. So why is that important to understand the mechanism of how Alzheimer's comes together? Well, it's because maybe we could use temperature as a means of diagnosing Alzheimer's. Hard to believe we don't have any great diagnostic tools right now, aside from the testing that comes sort of after the fact. And that also has tremendous implications for therapies. Imagine if we could use therapies that somehow lower the temperature in these cells in order to stop those proteins from folding. Well, that would be pretty exciting as well. So it is a study. It's early, true. We need tons more research after those. But it is an interesting, it's an interesting concept. Yeah. So do we know, Dr. Gorfinkel, is this getting us any closer to a cure? Because uh, as you well know, and so many, sadly, Alzheimer's has affected uh, so many people, so many uh, families. Is this giving us just a, a better understanding of the disease and uh, better diagnostics, as you said? Or is this, uh, do we think, do we believe, going to get us uh, a few steps closer to an eventual cure? It's one very, very small step. You know, 
truly, most patients with dementia, it is not a single type of dementia. So even in patients who have all, they have lots of little tiny strokes. They have Alzheimer's. Sometimes there's a little Parkinson's thrown in. There's different types of dementia that often come together. That's the majority of individuals. So this explains one form of dementia, potentially, and we still have a long, long way to go before this study will translate into practical changes that doctors like me as GPs can you know, use in, in daily practice. All right. Dr. Gorfinkel, appreciate it as always on this Wednesday. Thank you so much and have a good rest of the week. All the very best. Many thanks. All right. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician and vaccine researcher who joins us each and every Wednesday here on the program during the Jeff MacArthur Show. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.